A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Nearly 50 years ago, the Sunday Times launched a landmark campaign. I was a boy when it happened, and I've never forgotten it. The drug thalidomide had been marketed in 1958 as a treatment for insomnia and morning sickness. It was found to be safe in animal trials, but it was never tested on humans. Hugely effective, it became one of the world's best-selling drugs. But there was a terrible side effect that soon became clear – Thalidomide damaged fetuses as they formed in the womb. By the time it was withdrawn in the early 1960s, it had led to 100,000 effective miscarriages, stillbirths and infant deaths. 10,000 children lived on, severely disabled. In the UK, the Sunday Times campaign for the right to publish the truth and to improve the paltry compensation offered to families, arguments that it comprehensively won. Such was the uproar and so expensive the outcome, most people thought this was a scandal that could never happen again. But even while the paper fought for the victims of one drug that affected the development of babies in the womb, the authorities blithely rubber-stamped the prescription of another. I still, to this day, wonder how could they approve this drug when the drug manufacturer is saying there are potential signs that it could harm unborn babies. How was it that they didn't think... We need to be careful that we don't cause another thalidomide scandal here. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, a scandal worse than thalidomide? I'm Sean Linton, health editor at the Sunday Times. I joined the Sunday Times in December. My route into journalism, into into health journalism, began sadly with an NHS scandal. I was a local journalist working in Stafford in the West Midlands when families started complaining about the poor care in their local hospital and working with them, we uh, exposed one of the worst care scandals in NHS history. Tonight, the Prime Minister has apologised to families who lost loved ones The inquiry into the Midstaff's NHS Trust found failings at every level, which led to the premature deaths of hundreds of patients. The report calls for a new era in the NHS with a zero-tolerance approach to poor care. That started an obsession with me for health journalism, and um, I came down to London and carried on writing about other problems in the NHS. 
Before we get started on, on this story, Sean, since you have covered a series of what we call health scandals, what are the common features that you discover they tend to have? The overriding one is as a failure by the institution to listen to those people who are raising the sort of unseemly problems that people like to avoid. There was a civil servant who described the overarching culture of the NHS is don't embarrass the minister. Very interesting. Now, how did you get started on the story that you and I are talking about today? Yeah, I was at an event. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for coming to this. I'm Sean Linton, your chair for the next two days. And I met Janet and Emma, the lead campaigners who've done tremendous work trying to raise the alarm about sodium valproate. They really just took me to one side and, and asked for my time. My name's Janet Williams uh, and I'm the CEO of the Independent Fetal Anticonvulsant Trust. We had a chance to, to speak to Sean and felt it was necessary to put the story across to him and explain to him what had actually been, been going on since 1973-74, really. They uh, both have families affected by sodium valproate. They've both got major challenges. We can't be the only family in this situation. There's bound to be others out there. For 35 years, we've been put on this wild goose chase. These families have gone through hell and back to try and find out who is to blame. They've channeled their frustrations into some really top-draw campaigning. He sort of took hold of the story from there onwards and just was was amazed as to how long it had been allowed to go on for. Here was a, a rank injustice. If we as journalists are here to... Uh, help highlight wrongs, then this seemed like a huge one that I, I just had to take a, a deeper look at, really. Now, let's do the building blocks. Firstly, what actually is sodium valproate? So sodium valproate is a very important anti-epileptic drug, and it's given to help control seizures, essentially. It's one of the better drugs for doing this, and epilepsy itself is a very severe condition, and it can lead to death as well. And so this drug is, for many people, a lifeline. So this is not a drug that needs to be banned. If people who have epilepsy are taking sodium valproate and are not pregnant, they should definitely not stop taking this drug. People should speak to their GP before uh, making any decisions uh, if they read our coverage or listen to the podcast. The problem becomes when it's prescribed to women who are pregnant and the dangers that it poses to the, the developing fetus. And how long has it been around? So it was discovered in the 1960s, by chance actually, by laboratory in, in France, and it was brought over to the UK and started to be used here in the early 1970s and was licensed then. But it was in those very early days even, there were emerging signs that this drug posed a potential problem and that wasn't really acted on at the time. Okay, we'll go back into the history of it because it's really interesting uh, in a moment. Now, this therefore belongs to the family of drugs that have impacts upon the developing fetus. That's right, yeah. The sodium valproate is a teratogenic drug. What that means is that it crosses the barrier, the placental barrier for the developing fetus, and so it can actually interact with the organs and and the cells of the fetus in the womb and can really have quite devastating 
consequences. So there, this is a whole class of medications and, and drugs that are out there. And the most famous one that people will be familiar with is thalidomide, which caused very severe physical disabilities and deformities in the fetus. But sodium valproate acts in a very similar way. It can lead to really severe learning difficulties and mental problems with the fetus and autism and, and just general cognitive problems in four out of the 10 babies who may be exposed to sodium valproate in the womb, which requires obviously very specialist care for the children affected. In most cases, they are dependent on their parents or carers uh, and will be for the rest of their life. They cannot live independently, they can't look after themselves. But for one in 10 fetuses, it can actually lead to really severe physical deformities as well. So twisted limbs and things that people might think of when we talk about thalidomide, very similar deformities. I was interested when I knew that we were going to do this interview about the question of warnings. So I looked up the sorts of drugs which did cause defects in the fetus and discovered that one of them was a pretty common hypertension pill, which I take. So I then looked inside the packet at the rather you know, quite long list of things which can go wrong. And sure enough, it is absolutely clear from the script inside the box that if I was a pregnant woman, I should stop taking this drug and consult a doctor immediately I knew I was pregnant. What's different here? I mean, is this problem ongoing or is this a historic problem? Because it's hard for me to believe that they wouldn't have a similar warning inside a box of sodium valproate. Sodium valproate has been a particular historical issue, but it is happening today. I've spoken with mothers who have received medication in plain packets where there is not a patient information leaflet contained in it. I've seen multiple examples and I've seen it with my own eyes. And the problem there is when Sanofi, the drug manufacturer, will send out their, their medication, but pharmacists, based on the dose that women receive, they may have to split the pack or create a, their own pack to send out to women with, and split the medication. And the plain packaging, which says if you're pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, read the patient information leaflet, but then that isn't contained inside the, the box. And that is a legal requirement. And the medicines regulator does know that this is an ongoing problem. So that's where we are today. But if we go back through history, I think one of the, the most shocking things about sodium valproate is that when it was first even considered for a license by the Medicine Safety Committee, which was the sort of regulatory body at the time, there were known risks there that it may harm the fetus. That was a warning from the manufacturer at the time. And that's what we see in uh, minutes that the committee recorded that the campaign groups have unearthed from the National Archives in Kew. I think it was um, 2015. We both sat there, scouting through all these paperwork. That's Janet Williams again from the Independent Fetal Anticonvulsant Trust. It was it was rather eerie because you, you, you're in the archives and it's exceptionally quiet, you know, and all of a sudden, Emma's face just sort of changed colour because obviously she'd found something. We were sat opposite each other at this table and it was like she, she just wanted to dance and scream. You could see it in her eyes. And it was like, what have you found? So I went round to her and had a look. And the document she'd found was from the Commission for Safety and Medicines, dated 1973. 
and it was minutes from a meeting that they'd had and it stated on this document as far as antidepressants were concerned they could give patient information to the doctors but not put it in the boxes so there wouldn't be fear of the patient actually seeing it. They obviously did not want the patient to see the problems that this drug was causing. And that shows the knowledge that the state had about the dangers of this drug, which were kept hidden for women right up until the early 2000s before real warnings started to actually being given out. Sanofi made it very clear that there were signs the drug was teratogenic in animals when they applied for the licence. There was a data sheet there which explained about the difficulties it was causing for women of childbearing age. So obviously all this information had been known about from 73 to 74. And the committee made a decision not to alert women to this risk because of a fear that they might stop taking the medication and, and also because of a sort of, I would say, a mistaken view that, that the risks were small and negligible and potentially you know, not necessarily worth troubling women about. And I think you look back at that, now, through the prism of where we are today, maybe it's a slightly paternalistic view that was taken by mostly male doctors sitting around the table there that they should deny women this information. And so for decades, women were taking this drug completely unaware that it had this risk. Doctors, however, were told that there was a risk, not so that they could alert women, but because they might then face litigation. The first emotion we had was was oh, sheer glee because all you wanted to do was just dance on the spot and we found it. It was a eureka moment, to be quite truthful with you. But but then the the realism of all it hits you and it's like, wow, they've known all along. Do we now go straight to the papers with it? Do we go into Parliament with it? And that was that was the biggest decision that we had to make at that point. How did we handle what we'd found? It was a historical problem, but it is still happening today. And we know that, I think, the latest data was showing that 200 women a year are being prescribed sodium valproate whilst pregnant. And that obviously means that those fetuses are being exposed to valproate. So we know babies are still, unfortunately, being born who will go on to develop the fetal valproate syndrome disorder. That's amazing. I imagine that some of those pregnant women probably have been warned or, or is it the case, you think, that almost all of them didn't know the risk? So I, th I think there, are, there will be women, obviously, who may be told about this and they make a choice to continue with the pregnancy. For many of those women, it's likely that sodium valproate is the only drug that works to prevent their seizures. And obviously having a seizure whilst pregnant is a danger to both mother and mm. and baby. But women can be switch to different drugs and that has happened in cases uh, that I've spoken to and women have then been able to make that choice and what we're talking about here is informed consent um, and that and that's perfectly valid I think for many thousands of women they were denied that informed consent for decades I think that's the key I just want to be clear about something about now and then um, we'll dig in even more into uh, the effects in the past and forgive my ignorance here, I would have thought that a woman tells her GP that she's pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant and the GP already knows that she's epileptic and that rings the alarm bell and then there's a discussion. So any woman of 
childbearing age who's taking sodium valproate should be having conversations with their doctor so that they can discuss these risks and so that they're properly informed about it and that they sign uh, to say that they know about this. However, what we are learning and what the campaign groups are being told is that there are many women who are not having these conversations with doctors and that there is a problem around awareness amongst GPs and doctors that this needs to be to be happening. I think that's been a, a persistent problem throughout the scandal, actually, is that the, the, whatever the regulator thinks is going on and wishes to be going on isn't always what actually happens on the ground. And GPs must receive thousands of documents about the different drugs they might prescribe. And NHS England actually sent out a letter to all women who were taking sodium valproate, again, to warn them of this, recognising that not enough had been done previously. Right, okay, so um, that that argues a degree of recent progress on that front at any rate. Let's talk about how big a problem this has been historically. Do we have any idea of the number of children who have been affected by this since the drug was first licensed and became available in the UK? There have been various attempts at estimating this, and, and it's commonly acknowledged somewhere between seven, eight, nine thousand, and the twenty thousand as the upper limit of families affected. And some families have been affected multiple times. Uh, we've got families who, by the time the condition emerges and the difficulties emerge, especially with those who have sort of autism and learning disabilities, they may already have gone on to have several other children who then all also are damaged by sodium valproate. So some families have two, three, even more children who've been um, harmed by the drug. Now, you've been talking to families who've been affected by this. I think one particular family that you went to visit in Hull, can you tell us a bit about that family, who, who they are and, and what's happened to them? Yeah, so we spent time with Catherine McNamara. I'm Catherine. I've got five kids. I had my first fit at, at 17 and they put me in a low dosage. They said the drug we'll opt for is sodium valproate because it seems to work well across the board. The brand they gave me was Epilim. Her son, Sebastian, who's nine, has been very badly affected by valproate. When you're seeing your baby wired up to different machines and unable to feed and you've just given birth, to be told that something you've done has caused this in your baby. It's really, really hard. Before we even started trying for Sebastian, I went to the GP and said, look, I've got two children. One's diagnosed with autism, one's got serious learning difficulties. Could this be connected to my epilim? And they said, no, no, it's fine. Go ahead and try and your baby will be fine. Go and have a baby. Um, and that's what we did. The neurologist also said, yes, that's fine. Because this was what they'd been told to say by the government. This was the government line. You know, they'd been warned in 1973 that it could cause harm to babies. But they'd told doctors and nurses not to tell prospective mothers that their babies could be harmed because they might stop taking the drug. And nothing was mentioned during my pregnancy about any dangers. And he was diagnosed with fetal valproate syndrome immediately because he had so many physical problems that you could just see just to look at. 
He has hands that are effectively facing the wrong direction and um, he has difficulty communicating. For Catherine, she's unfortunately living with the consequences of that and, and so will Sebastian for the rest of his life. The feeling of guilt was absolutely immense. Sebastian's waiting for two operations at the moment and they're monitoring his, his spine now. Oh, listeners might be a bit amazed by this because you would have thought, okay, she goes and she asks, and then whoever it is, well, well, they don't necessarily know, so they look it up. And if they look it up, they say, yeah, you have got a problem. So how could that not happen? Yeah, so this is what is really quite shocking for me throughout this story. Catherine's story is not unusual. She's typical of what lots of mothers said to me, that doctors have repeatedly assured them that Valpoate was safe. In some cases, that, that may be ignorance on behalf of the clinician, but whatever the reason, it is a consistent pattern. For many of them, there is real anger there that they feel let down by the healthcare system and the state, effectively. Now they're living with the consequences of this with very little help. And a lot of these families now, their children are actually getting into their 20s and 30s now. Almost all the families I spoke to, one of the overriding uh, messages they had was that they worry what will happen when they're not around to look after their children, which is why the, the families are, are seeking redress and compensation from the government so that they can help provide their children with some level of, of support and independence as they age. Coming up... I don't think we can be confident completely that, that this won't happen again. But first. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of the Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This all seems incredibly resonant of something that a story that broke when I was a teenager and broke in the Sunday Times where you now work, which was the thalidomide scandal. This film is about thalidomide. I expect it will surprise almost all of you, perhaps even shock you. It's ironic, actually, David, that we're here in 2022. It's almost in a few months, almost exactly 50 years since the Sunday Times first broke the thalidomide story. In 1972, the silence was finally broken. The Sunday Times had begun its historic and untiring campaign to get compensation for children most of us had forgotten. The Sunday Times really highlighted, in much the same way with Valpoate, the impact on the families and the moral case for compensation for those families, I think, was how the Sunday Times fought for redress. It won the day, of course. Those families received far more compensation than they'd been originally offered. Last year, after 11 years of struggle, the children won their compensation. We now have the 20 million protected against inflation. Now let's get the small print right. And the Sunday Times really did expose a failure of the regulatory system, which led to the Medicines Act, which came into force just a few years before sodium valproate was licensed. But sadly, obviously, it failed in that instance to protect people. Now, Sean, you've told us when the drug first came to the UK, and you've told us that the medical regulators in the UK were warned by the French company, Sanofi, I believe, that there were possible side effects. And you've talked about the minutes for the Committee on the Safety of Medicine showing a decision was made not to alert women to these risks. Firstly, who was on that committee? What kind of person was on that committee in those days? The membership was a lot of leading clinicians from across the country, in many cases similar to today, actually. They were eminent clinicians of the time. I tried to speak to a few of them for our story, but unfortunately most have passed away. And we're going back 50 years. We don't know exactly what was in their heads when they were making these decisions, but they really downplayed the risks of anti-seizure medication generally and sodium valproate. I think the shadow of thalidomide looms quite large over the, the valproate story. There are many similarities in how families have been ignored and repeatedly told no. That is exactly the thing that I, I, that I was wondering about because this committee had this meeting at the same time as the thalidomide scandal had, if you like, led to significant action based on what the Sunday Times had done. And it seemed odd that somehow or other the people who were looking at it didn't have it in the back of their minds, have it in the front of their minds. Absolutely. I, I think exactly the same. At the point they were making this decision, the industry that they were working in had just been taken really around the block over thalidomide. And, and 
I, I still to this day wonder how could they approve this drug when the drug manufacturer is saying there are potential signs that it could harm unborn babies. Why didn't that committee make the decision to do a long-term review of the effects of sodium valproate? I mean, that research would have answered the question, but it wasn't done actually until the late 90s, early 2000s, before that really started. So we denied ourselves the knowledge to make the, the safe decisions, really. And I, and I think that is is a question that hangs over that committee. And we've been a, unable to get the answers because, sadly, many of the committee members have passed away. So we don't have that well-funded research which allows people to prove their case but i presume the people are in the, even at that stage are saying look there's something to worry about here now the usual pattern we have here is that the evil manufacturer wants to sell their pills or whatever so they hide what's happening from governments and from patients but that's not quite what happened here is it no it isn't sanofi actually raised the alarm and actually funded some research as well. And what I think what I was amazed by in my research for this story was that at several points, Sanofi actually asked and requested the medicines regulators to include more warnings about the drug, and they were told no. Told no? Told no, yeah. When you look back over the timeline of sodium valproate, what you see is a slow drip of warnings that were slowly added to the patient information gradually over time. But this only started really into the 90s, by which stage you know, huge numbers of women had been taking Valparate and having children. And yeah, so it's, it's, this isn't a case of a drug manufacturer hiding the truth. It was it, This really was a, a state failure, a regulatory state failure that, that, that led to the harm of these women. It, it, is, it is not on the, the drug manufacturer necessarily. And during this time, were there effective denials of what evidence there appeared to be? Yeah, so we did see some cases where, as the research emerged, inevitably clinicians will argue and debate this research. And there were some attempts to say that this was a little dangerous to suggest that Valproate was a problem drug and that the research wasn't good enough uh, and people should not necessarily take it at face value, including some very eminent publications like The Lancet, for example, had uh, criticism of research that was trying to raise the alarm about Valparate. So, you know, the debate in the medical circle continued some time and, and all the while, none of this was reaching the patients taking the drug. Now, this changes, you're suggesting, when the research is actually funded and done. Can you tell us how that came about? Who did the research and what it led to? Actually, the alarm was raised first in Europe before it was in the UK. And it was the European Medicines Agency who initially picked up the concerns for this and started the whole ball rolling and fired back to the UK things that we should be doing differently. And, and so it's been a very slow process and quite a frustration for some of the clinicians who do this work. And it's a live issue. We still have a whole class of drugs that are taken by women whilst pregnant. And we aren't doing that population level research. So you know, we, we can't actually sit here today and say that there isn't another Valparate out there. There could well be, but we're not actually looking and, ask, and asking that question in the research. And maybe you don't know the answer to this question, and I quite understand if you didn't, but if the research has been done in Europe, they're still pregnant women, and they're still taking the drug. And you would have thought that on the basis of the research done in Europe alone, you'd then take action immediately in Britain. 
it's really struck me working on this story is that there there are plenty of other occasions where concerns about medicine spark a very energetic debate and action is taken and and I'm not sure exactly what the full reason is behind why Valproate was such a, a hard slog, but it it shouldn't have fallen on families and mothers uh, to raise the alarm about this. With, with the help of a few clinicians, the system should have been able to spot this itself. But eventually, they do get a government inquiry, don't they? Can you tell us a bit about that, what it did and what it concluded? Yeah, so, so um, Baroness Cumberledge, who's a, a former health minister, Tory peer now, was commissioned by Jeremy Hunt to look into sodium valproate after the... He was then um, health secretary. He was the health secretary then, yes, and he commissioned Baroness Cumberledge to take a look at sodium valproate. Sodium valproate. The link between sodium valproate and birth defects has been known for many years, yet women and babies continue to be exposed to the risk. And her report was published in 2020. It was one of the most shocking reports I've read, actually, about how the system has let down thousands of Valparate patients. She was very clear that the healthcare system wasn't listening to women. It has prompted, I think, a bit of soul-searching on the NHS in terms of how we provide healthcare to women. And, and I suppose here I am, sitting here as a man, I wonder whether these scandals would have quite happened if they were happening to men. Now, there's always two issues which arise, I imagine, from something like this. In the first instance, there's the question of what is actually been recommended to be done and actually has been done to remedy the situation. And the second question is the question of help and compensation even for the victims. Can you just take us through the first one? What's changed as a result of Baroness Cumberledge's report? So on sodium valproate, Baroness Cumberbatch was clear that there needed to be better support for the families and, and for the, the children affected. But I think the key one, uh, and the, the one that I think leaves a lot of families feeling very angry, is about the apology that was recommended and the redress scheme that Baroness Cumberbatch wanted to establish. There needed to be an, an independent redress agency, was how she described it, to provide financial support to people when they're harmed by a medical intervention. And sadly, the government have said no to that. And they've also said no to the suggestion of specific redress for these patients. And I think that's left a lot of families feeling very angry that they, they there's an acknowledgement from the government that this harm has occurred, that there was fault, but no one seems to want to be willing to step up and help these families. Once we found the archive documents, you can imagine what, we were thinking. Janet Williams again. It's not the doctors. The doctors were doing what they were told to do and not tell the patients. It's not the drug company, because the drug company gives the information to the government for them to decide what to do with it. So this is a government issue. Now, if this was to go through the courts against the government, God knows how long that would take. And if those parents were to win, God knows how much it would cost You've got to bear in mind how many children have actually been affected by this. And this is why we've been saying all along, come talk to us. Do like you've done with the solidamizers and let's get this sorted. We'd like them to have the care plan to make sure that they are able to live independently. 
We'd also like, if it was possible, to have some sort of lump sum because of all the pain and suffering that they've gone through. We've got urgent questions and a parliamentary question ready for Prime Minister's questions on the Wednesday. And we're hoping that we can sort of push this forward now. Up until now, that's not been possible because of them refusing to meet with us. We have asked for a meeting with the Department of Health and possibly the Treasury because the conversation that we understood was the Department of Health was saying it was the Treasury's decision and the, the Treasury was saying it was the Department of Health decision. <laughs> so we need to get to the bottom of that first and foremost. But yes, so we're hoping, once this is, has gone out into the papers, that we can get down there and hopefully force them into a meeting so we can sit around the table and discuss this. The Valproit scandal goes back some time. Is there something that we are doing now, that we are giving people now, that we are not warning people about now, somewhere that is going to break in 10, 20, 30 years' time and people are going to say about us, what were they thinking of? Given what we know about the situation right now, I don't think we can be certain that we're not doing this now. And I don't think we can have confidence just yet that the healthcare system in this country would be quick and responsive to any emerging concerns. There is awareness amongst the regulators that they need to do better and they say they're doing that. But I don't think we can be confident completely that that this won't happen again. And in fact, Baroness Cumberledge warned that those risks are there and do still exist. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Sunday Times Health Editor Sean Linton and Chief Executive of the Independent Fetal Anticonvulsant Trust, Janet Williams. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. You have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.